Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace that is deeper, better than we dare believe. I pray, Lord, for your grace to supply what is lacking in me, and there's a lot, as we open up your word, that I may explain it faithfully, and most of all, Lord, that beginning with myself, lest I be a hypocrite, we may all obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Can you guess where we're going in the Bible? The book of James, please. If you didn't bring your Bible, find one in the seats near you. If you don't have one at home, please take that Bible home with you. We will do anything and everything we need to do to resource you, including giving you a Bible. If you need it, better than the one uh, that you just picked out from under the chair. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the James is near the end of it. And I'll do the same. I'll open my Bible in the book of James. We're beginning a journey that will end shortly before the holidays through this book. We are experiencing the book of James first through teaching it here in the service, but also through small groups. So if you don't have a small group, I would really encourage you to find one. Pastor John Vaux has produced the finest material we've ever given out to group leaders uh, that we've produced here at the church, far better than anything I've ever done. And Rachel Thomas has made a beautiful design, so it's not only substantial and filled with good biblical content, it's actually pretty. It's nice to look at. It looks amazing. It's very enjoyable to go through it. I'm using it myself in my own study. The book of James is a letter. It was a very early letter. It was written in the 40s, not the 1840s, not the 1740s, not the 1540s. It was written in the first decades of this side of history after the life of Jesus. There are three James that are mentioned in the New Testament that could have authored this book, but truly there could only be one author of the book of James. He surprisingly is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was the first but not the only child born to Joseph and Mary. The Bible refers to the family of Jesus in very natural ways. Galatians 1.19, Paul simply says, and James, the brother of the Lord. And if it ever there was a reason to name drop, you would think that James would have used it in this letter. But James isn't a name dropper. I want you to see how he begins his letter. And ancient letters, biblical letters, are like modern-day emails. They tell you in the beginning to and from. It's actually a better way to write a letter if you've ever received a note or a letter and it just says, dear, whatever your name is. Sometimes you have to flip the second page and see who's writing. Not in ancient letters. They tell you from the beginning who's writing and who they intend to reach. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was not always so. James isn't going to tell you his story in this letter. He's writing a letter, as you're going to discover, to his fellow Jews who have been scattered in persecution because of the faith they share in Jesus. But it was not always so. James doesn't drop a name. He doesn't say, as I might tempted to be, this is the brother of Jesus writing you. You better listen. I've got insider knowledge. I've got some experience with him that you know nothing about. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Notice he calls his brother, Jesus, his Lord, and he calls him the Christ. In other words, Jesus is in charge. He's the boss. He's the sovereign, and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah we were promised, and he didn't always believe that. If you read the Gospels in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus is beginning to do his miracles and preach with authority and going into the synagogues and opening the Scriptures with an authority that no one has ever heard before, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. It says in the Gospel of Mark specifically that his brothers and sisters went to take custody of him because they thought he was out of his mind, as you might. If your older brother started saying he was God, what would you think? It's a lot to take in. Of course he didn't believe it. Very few people could believe it. What made the difference for James? The resurrection. The only reason to believe a word in the Bible and a word I'm telling you from it as I try to explain it because that's my only intent, it's not to give my own opinion. I'll tell my own stories and make my own applications, but those have no validity whatsoever unless they're drawn from the teaching of God's Word and what validates the story, the claims, and the person of Jesus is a single thing, His resurrection. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, even as he tells us that Jesus personally appeared to James, that the whole basis for our faith is not that it's a better system of values, not because it's a good way to live. The foundation and the proof of it all is only one thing, the resurrection of Jesus. And we don't know for sure when James actually came to believe. You can imagine the mountain of disbelief he had to climb before he actually put his faith personally in his brother. Not as a good man, not as an authoritative rabbi or teacher, but as actually the Savior of the world. That the Scriptures that James had heard from childhood going along with Jesus to the synagogue when the scroll of Isaiah was rolled open and they spoke of the prophecies of Jesus written 700 years earlier, and Jesus eventually started telling people plainly, this is me. I'm the one this is referring to. These promises are kept right here, right now, right in front of you. James came to believe that apparently only because he witnessed Jesus back from the dead. And he says he is writing as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's, here's who he's writing to. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You'll notice that's capitalized. What the translators are trying to do there is give you a hint. They can't explain it to you. They're just translating what James wrote in Greek so many years ago in the 40s, very close to the resurrection of Jesus, in other words. The translators have capitalized that to give you a hint about something historic that happened to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You see, the faith in Jesus that had begun so small that seemed to be scattered when his, res when his disciples ran for their life after they witnessed his ran for their lives after they witnessed the death of Jesus, everything changed when they met him back from the dead. And men who had previously run as cowards now find themselves emboldened by what they know about Jesus and the miraculous arrival of the Holy Spirit. 
They're giving witness to Jesus as they never have before, so much so that some scholars estimate that half of Jerusalem had placed its faith in Christ by the time of the dispersion, by the time they were scattered. Why, they, why were they scattered? You can read about that in another book of the Bible. In Acts chapter 7, you'll read the story of a man named Stephen who preached a bold sermon that got him killed. And after the first person was killed for his faith in Christ, after Stephen was killed, great persecution engulfed all the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. They were dispersed. It's a historic event, this dispersion. Because they believe in Jesus, they're taking the gospel with them everywhere. Jesus had told them to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now they are, not by choice, but by necessity. They're running. But that single verse alone tells you a great deal about the author and the audience. James has come to believe in Christ in spite of his skepticism. What I'm telling you in plain language is there was a time in James' adult life when he thought the best thing to do for Jesus was to institutionalize him, to have him committed because he was psychiatrically broken. Jesus continued his ministry. James came to believe in him because of Jesus' resurrection. Now James is writing to his fellow Jews who, like him, are on the anvil. They're taking it on the chin because of their faith in Christ. And he's going to tell them how to go through a tough time. In James's day, they wouldn't have opened the Bible. The Bible was still being written. In James's day, probably what happened was a few dozen people gathered in a private home, gathered because the word had spread that a letter had arrived from the brother of the Lord. And people had gathered around, and one of those who had the rare privilege in those days of knowing how to read probably read it aloud to others. We won't take time to read the whole letter, though I hope you will. And I hope you'll read it at least once a week while we go through it together through the end of the year. But they would have heard this in the middle of all their suffering, in the middle of all their persecution. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Look back up at verse 2. James, experienced with suffering, writing to people who are suffering, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let me ask you an honest question. Do you like to hear that? Do you think, did he lose you from the second verse alone? He was doing so well. He said he was a servant of God, and if his, he doesn't even name him as his brother, simply as his Lord, Jesus Christ. 
to my brothers, and that's an inclusive term in Greek. That's like the American you guys or the more appropriate Texan y'all, okay? It includes men and women. To his brothers and sisters who have been scattered by persecution, I give you greetings. And then there's no blessing, there's no prayer, there's no how are you. There's just one word literally of greeting. And then he tells people in the midst of suffering who have fled away from their families, who may never be able to go home, who may now find themselves wandering looking for work, and at the mercy of strangers, wherever persecution has taken them, he's going to tell them right out of the box, he's going to give them some direction, some counsel about their suffering. And here it is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And you said, not amen, but oh me, right? How? Well, James wants to do something to teach you how to go through a tough time. He wants to address two things, and in this order. He wants to teach you first how to think, and once he's reminded you and insisted and proven to you why you have to think a certain way, then he wants to tell you how to act. And thinking is more important than action when you're in a time of suffering. It's always important to think first. Have you ever acted without thinking? We call that reacting, and it doesn't always work out. For the last few years, one of the most enjoyable, exciting, and humbling, and instructive things I've done is spend quite a bit of time with first responders. And one of the amazing things about that, all of those professions, when they're done well, when they're done with excellence, is how much time those men and women spend training not only what to do but how to think. The reason for that is you can't possibly envision every possible scenario that could happen in a crisis. You can't train for everything that might happen to a person and everything you might be called upon to do. For, to be sure, there's a lot of things to know and to train, but what matters most and first is to teach people based on principles and sound wisdom, not what to do, but how to think about what's happening. To disengage emotionally, have a little bit of detachment, see what's going on, understand what is needed, and then maybe for the first time in your life take specific actions that will save somebody's life. James echoes that wisdom, or rather begins that wisdom by saying, as you go through this suffering, first I want to teach you how to think. Specifically, James wants to adjust our attitude toward trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If you're taking notes, trials in this specific context, what James is referring to is pressure and trouble that comes from outside. It's a specific reference to the heaps of pain that other people are inflicting upon their lives. It's not a matter of them being tempted. It's not a matter of them being immoral or falling into temptation because of evil desires that are inside of them. No. These are, to this point, faithful Christians who, through no fault of their own, simply because they have trusted in Jesus, are facing all kinds of different trials, all kinds of different troubles and pressures. And James says, in all of those situations, what you need to do is count it all joy. Now, what does that mean? 
I'm always telling you, read in context and slow down. It can't possibly be, it can't possibly mean to call suffering a good thing. It can't possibly mean also just to keep a happy, smiling face on. Anybody ever told you to smile when you're really down? Isn't that helpful? <laughs> Christians are sometimes the very worst at it. We'll walk into somebody's life that has been blown apart by trouble, by suffering, by the sudden arrival of illness or death. And we'll tell them, hey, give us a smile. Oh, they're going to give you a punch. They're not going to give you a smile. <laughs> James is talking about mindset. Notice that word, count. Another one of your translations will say, consider. In other words, when you're going through pressures and troubles of all kind that didn't come out of your heart, it's trouble that other people and other circumstances have brought into your life. I want you first to change how you think about it. I want you to count it. I want you to consider it joy. And joy is not happiness. That word happiness is a very smart word in English because happiness depends upon what happens to you. Yesterday, somebody gave me cheesecake. I was happy. <laughs> Last thing they should have given me, for obvious reasons that I won't go into. But it happened to you. If somebody had given me a headache instead, I wouldn't have been happy about it. One of my professors defined it this way. He said, happiness is the surface of the ocean, always changing, depends on the wind. Joy is the bottom. Settled, unmoving. Joy is that God-given Christian capacity of looking beyond present circumstances and remembering what James said in the first verse, that Jesus really is Lord. That none of this suffering, none of this trouble, none of this pressure is outside of His knowledge and is outside of His control. What are we being taught here? We're being taught how to think, how to change our attitude toward trials, and the only way and the only reason to do it is not in verse 2, it's in verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know Here's the because, here's the why you can maintain a positive, God-trusting, peaceful attitude in the midst of suffering. James says, because no matter what is happening in your life, you can be reminded of something, you can know something. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Look very carefully at verse 3. These are suffering Christians, and what James is telling them is, when you start to suffer, remember to look past the suffering and have a positive attitude, not in the suffering, not because of the suffering. You don't have to be what, happy about what's happening to you. It might be evil. It might be undeserved. It may seem very random to you. It may seem cruel to you. But you know that in all of those different kinds of trials, what is happening in that moment is your faith is being tested. 
In other words, he's speaking to Christians and telling them, remember, when trials come, the reason you can keep your head up and keep looking to Jesus is you know in that moment the faith you already have in Jesus is now being tested, and the testing of that faith is going to produce in you something rare in our culture, which is steadfastness. The reason Christians can be joyful, though they may not be happy in suffering, it's inhumane to be happy in suffering. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Sometimes Christians are act otherworldly, less than human, when they walk into the middle of real suffering and they tell people, you know, this is going to be very good for you. Well, it Maybe if I break your neck and you can go through that trouble, you can be reminded in the hospital while you heal that this also will be good for you. Do not be the person that walks into the living room of people who are in genuine suffering and grief and announce to them this sort of attitude adjustment. That's a personal responsibility that Christians have to take, like a first responder preparing his mindset before he knows exactly what circumstances he's going to face. And here's what James is teaching. Your faith already is in Jesus. Now your faith is going to be tested. And the purpose of God testing your faith in all the trials that you may face is to make you godly. Look again at verse 3. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word picture that James is using, it's hidden to us in English. But James is saying something like this, your faith in Jesus is gold. It's extremely valuable. It's going to save your life. And trials are the fire that is going to test it. It's not going to produce more faith. It's going to refine the faith that you already have. And if you endure that, that will produce steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Steadfastness is a little different than patience. The way we normally think, patience is a good thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that Jesus produces in the lives of people who follow Him when we trust Him and act like He does. But the American concept of patience is just putting up with something. It's very passive. You just kind of sit there and let it happen. Let people walk over you. That's why I like that James chose the word steadfastness. Steadfastness is the mindset of a person who, for a good reason, has to carry a very heavy burden a mile. And he has to do it all alone, and there's no getting past it. If this job is going to get done, this big, heavy package has to go a mile in that direction. And it's going to take a very long time because it's very heavy. But he sticks with it, and he keeps going. And he doesn't give up. And he keeps his mind on the relief he's going to feel and the reward he's going to experience when this is finally done. That is steadfastness. It's not me a few weeks ago at a government institution. I didn't say a thing to anybody, but I thought it took far longer than it should have. I thought as a taxpayer my rights were being mistreated, if not frankly abused. So I let everybody know it by not saying a word, but by having very poor body language in that government office. Have you ever done this? looking at the ceiling, big, heavy sighs, arched eyebrows. 
that's neither patience nor steadfastness. That was childishness on my part. I wish I would have been reading or studying James at that time. <laughs> James says, when you face trials of various kinds, think, change the way you think about it. Consider it all joy, not because it feels good, but because it has a good effect, because the testing of your faith in God is always meant to make you godly. In other words, trial, pressure, trouble is always meant to make you more like God Himself. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look again at verse 4. Don't you wish you were that person? Don't you wish you could be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? Doesn't that sound good? How often do you feel ill-equipped to meet the trials of life? I heard a mumble. I didn't get a specific answer. Just too bummed out to, to answer? Well, what's going on here, folks? I feel inadequate all the time. I question myself, I question circumstances, I question my capacity all the time. What is James trying to do in helping these Christians and instructing them to change their mindset? He wants to get their vision up, their attitude up, so that they will look past the trial into the purpose for the trial. The reason God will use the trial, whether it is deserved or not, it might be rooted in injustice and evil. They're being persecuted for a no good reason. They've welcomed their Messiah. They have trusted Jesus. They are actually bringing the life-saving gospel of Jesus everywhere they go. And the more faithful they are, the more they suffer for it. So James says, rather than pray for relief, first adjust your mindset. When you find yourself in the trials and all those different kinds, remember to consider that to change your attitude and think of that as a joyful thing because God has seen faith in you. He is now purifying it. He is now putting it in the fire, and if you hang in there, you will be steadfast. In other words, you'll stick with it like an athlete that trains for months and years for the test of 10 seconds. You will be steadfast like someone who goes to school and cries their way through the hard classes and gets up when they don't want to and forgets about hobbies and, and entertainments maybe for years so that someday they can have that diploma and begin that career or that vocation. Why do people endure difficult things? Not because they enjoy them, not because of some weird kind of masochistic trait, but because they are in pursuit of something greater. And James says, the greater thing that trials can produce in your life is, if you, can, if you change your mindset about these trials, you will become steadfast. And if steadfastness has its full effect, in other words, if you don't quit in the process, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. In other words, you will be what we're all trying to become here at Crosspoint. You will become godly. James was the kid brother of Jesus. One of the surprising things I've discovered in the book of James, I didn't see it before until I started reading it over and over again and reading scholars who have given their lives to studying this letter. 
is how close James is to the very words of Jesus, how often, sometimes by paraphrase, he will quote Jesus. James is saying, fix your attitude about trials, because what God intends through them is to produce in you the kind of person who is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, he wants to make you like God himself. That's what Jesus told all of his disciples to do. Look at this verse with me. Matthew 5, verse 48. This is Jesus, your Savior. Jesus, James's older brother. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, talking to his disciples, telling us what kind of people we should be. This is Jesus speaking to you if you know Christ. Read it with me. Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's really simple, but read it again with me, please. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever read that and ignored it? You have, right? You know what? I don't know who he thinks is going to do that, but it's not me, so I'll, I'll just read on. What did Jesus have in mind? Once God brought, has brought you into his family by his grace, because you can't earn your way into his family, the only way into the family of God is the forgiveness of God, is the grace of God. Religion says if you get close enough to perfect, God will let you in, and it's nonsense. It won't work, you won't make it, no one ever has. The grace of Jesus announces the death and the resurrection of Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior, to welcome you into the family of God, that Jesus will trade all of your sins for His righteousness. And once you're in the family and you're enjoying that relationship, guess what? Trials will still come. Trials may come now more than ever. And what God has brought you into His family to do is not only to take you to heaven someday, it's to start the process which He will complete of making you as He is right now. And if you've ever known a godly Christian, you've received a great blessing. Because you've met someone, a man or a woman, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was, hopefully, it was someone in church leadership that really could give you a picture of what Jesus was actually like. Maybe it was a dear friend, maybe it was someone who helped you find sobriety and sanity and peace. But if that person was a Christian and acted like Jesus, what you're seeing is someone who is different a person like James, a previous skeptic who once thought Jesus was literally crazy, who came to believe in him and was willing one day to die for him because church history says they killed James by throwing him from the top of the temple. He landed and survived, so the crowd raced down and beat him to death on the ground. That's James. He has credibility. He's not an ivory tower theologian. He is someone who has seen death and suffering his entire life as a Christian, and James is saying what trials are going to do for you that nothing else can is make you perfect, give you, if you want, a complete word that is a little more accessible, a little more believable, integrity. You won't be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect until you arrive in heaven with your Father but you shouldn't stop striving. Little rabbit trail, just a little one. One of the 
curses of the way the Bible is often taught and understood in the 21st century is, Jesus has saved and forgiven you of everything, go do whatever you please. It's all forgiven, so just go do your thing. That's not found in the New Testament anywhere. Now, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He has saved and forgiven and given the very name of God, saying, your heavenly Father, think about that, God who is in heaven, He's your Father. He loves you. You're already in. Now go be like Him. Because no loving, good father is content to let his kids act any way they please. Good dads always want their kids to be more like they are. Right? Read it again. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the connection that James is making. The only thing on earth that will quickly bring this process to completion are trials, not blessings. See, and I'm going to be candid and personal for a moment. In this series, unless things change, and they might while we go through this series, I have very little to tell you about suffering because by the grace of God, I've actually suffered very little. I know that because I meet almost every week or talk to someone on the phone who has really been through the fire of suffering. And it's perspective. My life to this point, and it won't always be that way, life eventually gets very difficult for everybody, but my life to this point has just been one big feast. It's been easy. So I can't tell you about my own suffering, but I can tell you something I've discovered a little bit in principle and I've seen lived out in the lives of others countless times. Blessings don't teach much, but adversity does. Blessings and grace make me grateful, make me happy, fill me with all kinds of good emotions, but I don't learn much when things are going well. Have you noticed? When do you cling to God? Most of us cling to God mostly when we need Him. When do we need Him? We actually need Him all the time, but we're not aware of it. Because most people live their lives on, under their own control, not really calling Jesus Lord, and they reach for God when life spins out of control. We even actually have a dumb bumper sticker to memorialize this fact. It says, God is my co-pilot. Think about that. God is my co-pilot. Maybe the dumbest thing ever committed to print. That's a pretty tall order. What's, a, what's the role of a co-pilot? You always want a co-pilot on an airplane because the co-pilot is there if something bad happens to the pilot, right? They both have work to do, but you really want him if the pilot suddenly drops dead. And most people live their lives saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, I got this. Oh, no, I don't got this. I don't got this. Can you help? And then he steadies the wheel, he brings you through the storm, and most Christians say to Jesus in that moment, thank you, I'll take it from here. And your hands are back on the wheel. There's a country song about that too, remember that? Jesus, take the wheel. He should always have the wheel. If he's willing to get in the car with you, let him drive. What are you doing? Don't make him your co-pilot. It's ridiculous absurd. 
James is talking to people who don't need that reminder. They're going through suffering. It's very, very painful. What they may not be able to see and what he's reminding them of is that all of the suffering, deserved or undeserved, random, seemingly random or completely understandable, it all has the same effect. When your faith in God is tested, it can produce steadfastness. And, verse 4, if steadfastness has its full effect, you will emerge on the other side of that trial different. You will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, you won't be there perfectly ever on this side of heaven, but you will look much more like your heavenly Father and much more like your Savior Jesus if you go through the trial. But notice… He says, first you have to change your mindset. You have to develop steadfastness, and steadfastness has to finish its work, and then you'll have this benefit, which is a simple way of saying, please, Christian, don't waste your suffering. A lot of Christians waste their suffering because they will suffer, they will hurt, they will question But at the last moment, in crucial moments, they release their grip on God and they rage and they scream and they lament and they wrench the wheel from His hands and they take over. And in that moment, all of the lessons, all the benefit, all the strength, all the maturity, all the integrity that God intended to create in that moment is lost and wasted. Here's the right attitude in suffering. This trial means that I have faith, and now God intends to purify it. Because, church, your heavenly Father is always working to make you more like Him. Whatever you're going through, blessing or testing, your heavenly Father is always working on the same purpose. He's working to make you more as He is. That's how to think. Now James is going to tell you how to act, in other words, what to do, because mindset is important. Mindset comes first, but once that person in crisis has got the right thinking, they still have to take action. In other words, a firefighter, a police officer in a life-threatening emergency first has to adjust his grip on reality by understanding what's happening and on the basis of truth and wisdom see what needs to be done. But even if his mindset is perfect, he still needs to act. And here's how James tells us to act. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Here's the implication. When you go through trials, when you go through suffering, when life starts hurting, it tends to make you foolish. Have you noticed? People who are suffering, people who are hurting do all kinds of crazy, unreasonable, self-destructive things. I don't know if you've had this experience. Just a little bit of pain and you start lashing out and reacting and insulting and yelling and screaming. I've seen that a few times. Someone's just a little bit upset. A police officer makes a friendly comment, and five minutes later, they're in handcuffs. Didn't need to happen. He just talked himself into it. He was upset, so he said something insulting, and things escalated, and the next thing you know, you're 
housing and food are provided by the county for a while. And it's a cry and shame because it didn't need to happen. That's not what anybody wanted, but here we are. What happened? You lost your cool. You didn't act with wisdom. You acted with foolishness. What James is saying in James 1 verse 5 is he knows how difficult this is going to be, how difficult it's going to be to keep the mindset focused forward that eventually when you get through this, when God brings this, this thing to a conclusion, when you, this finally comes to an end, you'll be more like your heavenly Father, you're going to know, need to know how to act, and the only safe way to act is this, you ask God for wisdom to go through trials. Because, church, your greatest need in a tough time is not relief from God, it's trust in God. What do you want when it's hurting? Relief. Why doesn't God bring it immediately? Because immediate relief teaches nothing. Anybody who's ever gotten themselves in shape, anyone who's ever graduated from a difficult course, Anyone who's ever had a baby or raised a child knows that if you quit when it becomes difficult, you don't get to enjoy the blessings at the end. James is saying, don't ask for relief. God can provide relief any times He wants to. Your greatest need in that tough time is not relief from God, but trust in God. And you need to keep asking, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I love verse 5 because it tells me that my heavenly Father is far better than I am. Anytime you ask God for wisdom, how will he give it? You're just reading the Bible with me right now. How will God give wisdom? Generously and without? What does it mean to give something with reproach? It means that you grant something, but you do it with tiredness. Maybe you were raised by somebody like that. Maybe it made you feel terrible. I've known a few dads who make a big deal about being providers. Hope you enjoyed that. I worked hard for that. Well, thanks, Dad. I'm five years old. I don't know what... It... <laughs> My father was nothing like that. But I've seen that meanness in myself. I realize sometimes as a pastor, rarely I hope as a pastor, but often as a father, someone in my family will ask me a question that, about the Bible, about theology, about something. And the tone is, even as I answer the question, the tone is, how do you not know this? How long must I struggle with you that you don't know this? Why do I have to keep reminding you? Really? You don't know this? And one of my lo loving family members said, when you act this way, you make us feel stupid. I thought, how mean, how selfish, how stupid, what a jerk I am for anyone to ask a Bible question. And the content of the tone is, oh, well, good, good thing I'm here. Well, I guess I'll remind you. That's my sinfulness. That's my selfishness. That's my ignorance. Anytime you ask your heavenly Father for wisdom on how to go through a trial, He will give it to you. How? Generously. All the wisdom you need. 
Because God knows what that trial's about. He knows what its purpose is. He knows how you're tempted to waste it, and he knows how he can get you through it without wasting it. He knows all about it. In fact, the moment of relief is under his absolute control as well. What do you need? You need wisdom from him, and anytime you ask him for it, he'll give you all that you need, and he will never tire of you asking so that you will never hear from God, as my children and my wife have sometimes heard from me, you again. No, he's a perfect heavenly father. He really is perfect. He's sinless and holy and merciful and just and good. In other words, he already is perfectly everything he's trying to make you through the trial. And if you will only trust him and keep asking him for wisdom, he'll give you everything you need to get through it. You just have to keep trusting him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Suffering always has the temptation of making you go up and down, hot and cold, trusting and distrusting, loving and unloving. James' counsel is when you find yourself in trial, first change your mindset. The suffering will continue for a time that God knows, and it's never out of His hands. It's always used for a godly purpose. When you get through it, if you get through it the right way, you'll be more like God. What you need is to persevere. Let that testing teach you what blessing never could, and the way to get through it is to keep asking God for the wisdom that will be needed daily until the lesson is taught and your character is transformed. Simply put, here's the right request. Here's what you need to be asking God. God, I cannot get any good out of this on my own, so please give me your wisdom. You keep fighting him for the wheel. You keep trying to short-circuit his process. You will gain nothing from it. Here's the adjustment, church. When suffering comes, adjust in this way. Remember, this will make me like my Father. And trust Him by saying, He will give me all the wisdom I need all the way through this. It's been quite a week for some people in our church. I talked, and I was thrilled to do it. I talked to people who just a few days ago thought they might be dying. They were here this morning. God in His mercy spared them. I've talked to others who candidly said they thought of taking their own lives. I've talked to others who were absolutely heartbroken over the behavior of their children. Others who were staring all kinds of things in the face, including what James will talk about next, the poverty, broken relationships, wounds from the past, past failures and past relationships that haunt them. All of those things are trials. They're all suffering. How do you get through it? If you belong to Christ, all of it, whether you started it or somebody else did, in God's sovereign care, it can all be used by God to make you like your Father. And as you go through the crucible, God has promised you on the front side, I'll give you all the wisdom you need to hang on to me, to be what you currently aren't, to be persevering, which someone described as faith stretched out. Faith that holds on. Your heavenly Father will give you all the wisdom you need 
all the way through until you remind people of Him and your Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Because of what you might be going through, I just want to open a space for all of us to pray and ask God and talk to God about our present circumstances. If you're in the middle of suffering, ask God to fix your attitude. The suffering may not change, but the way you think about it can. The person you trust in the trial can change too. You can move your trust from yourself to God, who's in charge of everything. If you're going through the trial, why don't you talk to Him about it? Ask Him for a change in your attitude. Ask Him for a change in your action to make you hungry for wisdom, dependent on wisdom. Until the lesson is taught, your character has changed. And then, then, in His time, for His reasons, having done all the good things that blessing alone could not teach, He'll give you relief. If you don't know Jesus, that's your greatest need. None of this applies. None of this can help you unless you trust Jesus first. Honestly, that's my plea to you, that you would trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that you would turn to Him and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. My trials, my suffering have brought me to a complete end. I feel bankrupt. I feel weak. I feel emotionally, spiritually dead. I realize that now. Suffering has taught me that. Please save me. Call out to Him and ask Him for His mercy and His salvation. He'll give it to you. That's what His death and resurrection mean. If you do, all I would ask is that you would pray, first of all, trust Him, not me, trust Him, ask Him to save you. I'm just the messenger. He does the saving. And take the card that's in your bulletin and let us know where you are, what you've prayed, what you need. We'd love to come alongside you, support you, encourage you, help you find Jesus if you don't this morning. And this offering, same thing. It's an exercise of trust. It's given by people who have quite a bit and people who have nothing at all. Why do Christians give rich and poor? Because we trust Him, because we love Him, because we get to participate in something that is eternal. We get to fill up heaven we get to give the good news of Jesus who saves people and begins the process of making them like He is, and then He takes them to heaven, and it lasts forever. Nothing else you can give your time or your money to will last forever. Only the Lord and only the souls of the men and women He saves will last forever. That's why we give in trust. Father, Help those who are suffering bear their burdens, give them wisdom, change their thinking, change mine too. And receive this offering, these prayers, these decisions in the name of Christ. Amen.